I'm Stuart Preston, and this is the Consciousness Podcast, where each week I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Christoph Koch, and the topic, I would say, was panpsychism. But we covered so much more of his work in human consciousness, including the integrated information theory and a breaking new way to measure consciousness. It was a great conversation, one which has me thinking of some great new science fiction ideas based on some amazing reality. Christoph is the Chief Science Officer at the Allen Institute for Brain Science in Seattle, Washington. From 1986 until 2013, he was Professor of Biology and Engineering at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena. While he was born in Kansas City, he grew up in Holland, Germany, Canada, and Morocco. His education includes the Lycée Descartes with a French baccalaureate, studies in physics and philosophy in Tübingen, Germany, where he earned his PhD from the Max Planck Institute. He spent four years as a postdoctoral fellow at the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory and at the Brain and Cognitive Science Department at MIT. He thinks a lot about the universe and how it came to be, about the brain, how it produces consciousness, and how the sentient mind emerges from the physical brain. We covered that and much more, so please enjoy my conversation with Christoph Koch. I appreciate you spending your time here today and... I uh, look forward to talking to you. I think, uh, you know, if you have anything else you want to talk about, uh, but we'll probably focus on kind of the, the panpsychism and, and your studies and some of the things that you're working on. Um, so what I wanted to do, normally I start off asking um, people to define consciousness or share with me what consciousness is, but I did see in your writing or one of your videos that you've you've defined it as a causal power of a system upon itself, which I find interesting that you mention a system. Well, wait, no, 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 no. So, so, so consciousness itself, what it is, is just any experience, any feeling, any experience, no matter how mundane, no matter how exalted once in a lifetime experience, any pain, any pleasure, remembering your son, being angry, being sad, being seeing blue, those are all different conscious states. That's what conscious experience is. Ultimately, okay. the, the theory says that ultimately consciousness is caused by the, by, the, by the causal power of a system acting upon itself. But what consciousness is, is pure and simple any experience. Okay. And is, is, uh, is that different than uh, a qualia? Yeah, I mean, qualia is just a fancy, experience. yeah, it's not. Qualia is just a fancy word that philosophers invented for different aspects of a conscious experience. It feels like something to see red. It feels like something to be sad. It feels like something to remember my mom. And, right. and people talk about the, the, the quality of that. But it's, it's the same thing. Any phenomenal, any experience, any subjective experience, any phenomenal experience, those are just different words. Okay. And... You know, I had a note here that the more the more a system can affect itself, that the more it's conscious. And is that what you're studying? Is that what you're looking at with the the fee? By able to quant the, the, quantize the, this. Well, okay. So let's distinguish. So, so, so first of all, there's the phenomenon itself. We all we all are conscious of it, as it were, because we have at least humans, at least adult humans, have the ability to be self-conscious. So we know. I know that I'm conscious. I know that right now I'm talking to you and. And hearing your voice in my head through my right. through my headphones, so so and and we can study that. Psychologists study that. I've studied that for many years in the lab. And then I can take it one step further. This is what Francis Crick 
you know, the guy, the, the scientist who co-discovered right. the double helical uh, nature of DNA, and I did for many years, where we say, well, let's look at the footprints of consciousness in the brain. Which bits and pieces of the brain give, seem to give rise to my feeling of seeing blue? And we know it's a, uh, it's a brain, it's not the heart. You have to appreciate that for thousands of years, most cultures, including Western culture, believed it was a heart that, that gives mm -hmm. rise to conscious sensation. And so today, we still have this heart-laden language. I love you with all my heart. I, he carries right. his heart on his sleeve. For, for Valentine's, I give my wife a heart-shaped chocolate. I really should give her a hypothalamic-shaped chocolate. Right, right. I, so, so we in, in most other cultures uh, thought it was a heart, but we know you can get your heart transplanted and you are you still you. What makes you is in your brain, it's not in your heart. So then we, we advocated for a program, let's study the footprint of consciousness in the brain to understand what happens in us, to understand what happens in people with traumatic brain injury, with coma, vegetative state, etc., etc. And then we can also ask, well, what is it about the brain that gives rise to conscious experience? And why does my spinal cord not give rise to conscious experience? Why does my liver not give rise to conscious experience? It's a perfectly decent piece of biological organ. My immune right. system. My immune system right now might be fighting off, you know, a, a, a virus, but I, I have no feeling. I have no conscious experience of my immune system. So why only the brain and why only a particular part of the brain? And then you can ask a general question, what is it? about the physics of a particular piece of excital matter that gives rise to conscious sensation. We don't believe it's a soul, you know, that used to be the standard answer, the sort of the dualistic, the, the Cartesian answer the, uh, from Plato, made it into New Testament, Thomas Aquinas, um, uh, St. Augustine, Descartes. And so I, I still grew up with this notion, well, there is a soul, right? The, the real Christoph is a soul, and when I die, this this soul sort of lives in some sort of hyperspace and at the end of time it gets resurrected by God. There isn't any evidence for it. It's logically incoherent. So scientists and philosophers don't think in that categories anymore. But it's still, there's still the question, where, so where does this voice in my, inside my head come from? And who else has it? Does the fetus have it? Does a 24-week-old uh, you know, preterm infant have it? Does a right. dog have it? Does a cat? Does a fly? A bee? And then ultimately, of course, what you also want to know, our creations. When Siri talks to me, when Alexa talks to me, does it feel like something to be Alexa? Right. And for all of that, we need a fundamental theory. And so this is the theory, the integrated information theory uh, of consciousness. And that starts, that, that, that makes this assertion that ultimately what consciousness is, it's a power of any system, no matter how complex, or no matter how constituted, to act upon itself, to have causal power upon itself. This is what conscious experience is. We live in a universe where complex systems acting upon themselves have, they also feel like something. That's what consciousness is. That's what the theory says. Now, it's not just a metaphysical theory, like philosophers have come up, come up with, right. you know, in dozens of them over the last 2,000 or 3,000 years, but it's something that we can actually, it makes some very precise predictions uh, for instance, it predicts that there's this device, there's a way you can test for the presence of consciousness in patients. In fact, the cover story, I just saw it came out today in Signing American. This, this month for the November special issue, it's an article I wrote on Conscious Meter. Uh, there's, this, there's this group in, in Italy and in, um, in Madison that's built this Conscious Meter, a particular procedure that tests in individual patients 
do they experience anything like agony or distress or mm -hmm. is, there, is there nobody home like in, sev in severe brain injured people when you're really not sure whether there is anybody there or not sorry that was a long-winded answer <laughs> yeah no and so there's there's this test you know i guess it's a slight diversion here but there's a test to, to measure the consciousness of a, of a patient Essentially what it does, think about a bell, like the Liberty Bell in, in Philly, right? Right. Now, if you hit it with a hammer, you can hear clear in a, in a good bell, you hit it, you can hear the resonances, doing, oing, 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 and they sort mm -hmm. of, the, these are waves in the metal that propagate around, around the, the bell and that give rise to this beautiful sound. Now, for example, the Bell Liberty is famously cracked, right? And you can hear it. Right. It, sounds, it sounds, well, same thing. With, with patients, so we will, all the evidence seems to suggest it's a particular piece of your brain that gives rise to consciousness, this structure called the cerebral cortex, at the, the mm -hmm. outermost sort of, the outermost shell of the brain, if you want. Right. And that, um, if it's well integrated, like you and me, when we're conscious, or when we're just lying there quietly with, um, you know, eyes closed, I can ping it using a technique called transcranial magnetic stimulation. I essentially briefly send a brief magnetic pulse of energy into your brain that excites mm -hmm. the underlying neurons and you get this wave that propagates around the brain. And I can pick up this wave, the echoes of this wave using EG electrodes. But these waves are very different when you're in deep sleep, when you have lost consciousness, really in deep delta sleep, no experience, right. no dreams, nothing. It's also different when you're, um, when you're a patient. Um, and unconscious, or for example, anesthetized, um, and 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 so the 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 theory says that if if you're conscious, your cerebral cortex is going to be highly integrated, but also differentiated, meaning it has each part of the brain has a different response, but they all relate to each other. And the more integrated and differentiated the the the, the brain is, the more conscious you are in some sense. Well, if you're not conscious because let's say you're deeply asleep, or you're anesthetized, or you're in coma. The, the, the brain response will not be integrated. The waves won't propagate very far, and they'll be very simple. And I can measure that using a practical device called Zip and Zap, or Zap and Zip. And that's being tested now in a variety of clinical centers throughout the world because there are thousands of patients in a so-called vegetative state. Mm -hmm. uh, you might remember Terry Schiavo. Does that name yeah, ring Terry a bell? Schiavo. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she was one of hundreds of or thousands of patients where all the evidence suggests that she's not conscious, but of course you're never sure because absence of evidence famously isn't, is not evidence of absence necessarily. And so you want some additional test that tells you, does it feel like anything to be Terry Scheibe? Uh, Clearly she, on occasion she was moving, she was moaning, she was occasionally moving her eyes, but never in a purposeful manner. So if you asked her, please move your eyes to the left or to the right, or you know, open your mouth or do something. She could never do that, but she did have reflexes. And so the question, are these just remaining brainstem reflexes because her brainstem was, was, was still functioning? Or was there actually somebody in there? And this is one way how you can test it. And so that's great progress. We now, it looks like we're beginning to have a conscious meter that tells me this patient, is she conscious or not? Wow. Yeah, that's pretty amazing because I've talked to... Um... Uh, a sister of a physician on, on this podcast who mentioned that doctors tend to have this binary notion of a patient is either conscious or unconscious. And so yeah, I mean, and now that this be there. 
uh, yeah. No, of course, in reality, I mean, partly that's just given the great difficulty. We all know we're not just, it's a little bit more complicated than that. If I haven't slept for two days and then, you know, I go to sleep and you wake me up within an hour, I won't be terrible conscious, right? Right. You know, this is also why we have coffee in the morning, because, yes, we're already there, but, you know, the coffee sort of makes us more aroused. So c confounding the picture is this arousal level that can vary. And you can be conscious, but very little, because you're low, you're, you know, your brain isn't aroused because you haven't slept well, you know, or you've been, you're, you're, you know, you have a hangover or you're drugged or something, versus you're, you're highly aroused, like I am right now, I'm standing here, I'm, I'm high, highly awake. And so there's this additional confound which is particularly difficult in the, in the, in the clinic, uh, is a level of arousal of the patient. They can be low aroused or high aroused. Right. And so with this, uh, I know we're kind of going down this path here, but with this, this test, can you test other entities for consciousness from, from an, an animal to a, a computer network to a, a rock? Would it be able to test these for consciousness? In principle, yes. In practice, it's the, if you look at the theory, it's a very mathematical one, and uh, the number, of, the number, the the things you have to compute become very quickly, very very large, super exponential. They they explode on you mathematically. So right, right. now, in in practice, the zip and zap is a practical way we can test it in people who have a cortex. We're trying to see right now. My 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 group here and other groups are trying to see to what extent it can be extended to animals that are similar to us, i.e. to other mammals that also have a cortex. Like a mouse has a cerebral cortex, just like you do. In fact, if I give you a little bit quinoa-sized brain, mouse brain, dog brain, human brain, monkey brain, elephant brain, nobody but an expert can tell that the, these pieces apart because they all look very similar. We have roughly a thousand times more of, of it than a mouse, but an elephant has two or three times more of it than we have. So, right. so, we, uh, so the idea is now let's try to, to, to try to use this practical test in creatures that are similar to us. The more they differ, like for example, a squid is not a mammal, doesn't have a cortex, has a very different organization, um, it's, more, it's more difficult to say. Um, a twin, you know, there are these twins, occasionally you have twins that have, that are connected at the level of the brain. There's one a couple, for example, here, uh, two girls, they must be like 10 years old now, north of here in, in Vancouver, they have a so-called salamic bridge. Well, is, are they, is there one mind or two mind present in them? We don't know right now. Well, what about a, a creature like a bee? A bee has a very complicated brain, vastly smaller than ours, uh, vastly smaller than ours, but highly complex. They can detect they can identify faces. They can return us uh, to the source of ascent. They have a very complicated ways they communicate. They have a very complicated way they they choose their hive. Does it feel like something? In principle, the right. theory allows us to test it. Right now, we don't have a practical test yet. So, what, what do you think? I mean, in, in your your thoughts and opinions, is that something you could even try to answer? Do you think a bee has consciousness? Can we imagine something it is like to be a bee? Yes, I do believe so. And I'll tell you why. I think it's the most rational assumption. It, the, the best evidence we have for consciousness, it seems to arise out of these very complicated nervous systems. There's no threshold. There doesn't appear to be any threshold. It's not like, well, if you have 42 neurons, you're not conscious. But with 43 neurons, you're, you're conscious and wouldn't make any sense. And so 
based on the behavior of these creatures, based on their highly complex nervous system, I suppose they also feel like something. Now, the, the bees are, you know, unlike the cartoons of bees, they, you know, they don't, they don't have an inner voice, they don't have an in, inner dialogue because they're much simpler. Their brain is much simpler. But it's, to me, I think it's self-evident that, that it also feels like something to be a bee. And they can have, we know they have pain and pleasure. We know they have some of the same neurotransmitter that we, ha that we have, for example, for their reward. So I'm sure it feels good to be a bee in the warm sun just having drunk some golden nectar. And so ever since then, I don't kill insects anymore. I just shoo them gently out of my house. Hmm. And, you know, I've turned into, in, uh, into vegetarian because I think all of us, small or large, whether we fly or speak or buzz or mute, you know, we live this conscious life bookended between two eternities. And so I think we should respect that. So when you say bookended between two eternities, is that... Do you mean anything by that in terms of our, our consciousness, that it, that it was in one eternity, then it manifested in who we are now, and then it returns someplace? Is that what you're thinking, or are you just saying we have this moment in time between two infinite time spans? The latter. I mean, we, you know, we came out of nothing. I have no recollection consciousness before my, right. before, you know, my before presumably as a young baby. I certainly don't remember anything until, you know, age four or five. And presumably, uh, as far as I can tell, unfortunately, once my brain dies, my consciousness is going to die with it. And, and that kind of, uh, so I had two questions kind of related to that. One, let's start with the first one is, so you believe it's tied to the brain, so where do you stand on, you know, normally somebody is like either a physicalist or a dualist, and it sounds like you kind of fall in between those two. Would that be, would that be accurate, or, or where do you stand on that? Yeah, philosophers forever try to put labels on, on okay, you have to yeah. be a dualist, or there's sort of different types of dualists, there's weak epiphenomenal dualist. So ult ultimately, consciousness, I think, is a property of the physical universe that particular systems have it. Not everybody has it, a rock. There's no evidence that rock has it or piece of yeah. dust, but complex system has it. We live in that sort of universe. So, you know, that's somewhere between a, a physicalist, because I do believe it's part of, it's part of the laws of nature, uh, but I also believe it's, it's, it's uh, more real than anything else, and it's different from the underlying physics. My conscious, my conscious experience of my life or of life in general is different from the brain that gives rise to this conscious experience. There's no question about it that they're different. So that sort of makes me a sort of dualist. So it's somewhere in between. Yeah. Is there, is there any chance of um, consciousness surviving without the brain? Or is it when the brain is done, the consciousness is also done? So I had two long, week-long encounters with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in, um, in yeah. India. And he, we, and the, the Tibetan scholar in him, and I, oh, uh, he didn't, but one of these Tibetan uh, monk scholars asked that question because, you know, of course, they believe in reincarnation. And right. I gave him a koan, you know, Japanese koan, four words, no brain, never mind. No brain, mm. never mind. Meaning, without there being some mechanism, whether it's a brain or even if you believe in uploading yourself to the cloud, all right, even in that case, there has to be a mechanism there. Without a mechanism, I cannot imagine how consciousness can, can rise. Where would my memories be stored? Where would these different, these different states of pain and pleasure on my memory that makes me me, where would they be stored? They have to be stored somehow. 
And so without a mechanism, I, I, there's no way that, that, that this can happen. So therefore, unfortunately, I don't see how, how reincarnation could, could happen. I, I wish it would be otherwise, but I just don't see any way it could happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, from my conversation with Dr. Kelly last week on near-death experiences, it's, you know, I, I was always, I always personally fell with you that it, it's tied into the brain, but there's so much compelling information out there, depending on how you interpret it, that, you know, almost lends itself to, you know, consciousness surviving the brain itself. Yeah, I mean, I would uh, I would disagree. Uh, I don't think this uh, the evidence is compelling. There's no question people have near death experiences. I don't question that in the least. But I question I completely question the uh, the validity, the empirical validity that the brain actually went flat, that there's no neural activity left because it would just run counter to everything else we know. None of our EG or other machines would work if that would be the case, right? If consciousness is not excited, excited with, uh, is not associated with electrical activity of your brain, then what the hell is the EG telling us, right? Is that just uh, yeah. so? Uh, I, I flat out disagree with that. And 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 furthermore, I mean, I understand people have this great need to want it to happen, and I, I understand right. that. As do I. I mean, it took me many years to lose my faith because partly I I'd like to believe that if I die, you know, I'll be resurrected with my family, my dogs, and everything else I love. But right. I think, you know, science is, a, is not a consoling tale for children. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a story for grown-up adults, and we have to look at the world the way it really is. Yeah, and the, the things you're saying, that are, you know, makes sense. It's, uh, and I want to get back to the Dalai Lama, too, but um, I don't know. I think, I think you made this point, or if you didn't, somebody else did while I was, while I was reading through your materials, that it's it's almost analogous consciousness is almost analogous to um gravity that it seems like you can measure the amount of con of consciousness in a complex system yes I'll the, the yes yes it has some aspects of that it's a, it's a it's part and parcel of the nature of the universe now, some people don't like it they want you know they want things to remain mysterious and again i i respect that but i think science and so some people don't want science to study consciousness or don't want science to answer this question because they somehow feel it devalues life. Right. You yeah. know, the idea like gravity, it seems banal. Well, gravity is everywhere, then, what, then what's special about us? But, but right. you know, well, in some sense, of course, if, if you look at the world and biology teaches us, we're not, we are as special as any other tree. Okay. You have a dog. I have a dog. I absolutely love dogs. Dogs are fantastic, right? They have their mm -hmm. own conscious experience, right? Their universe is redolent with smells I can never appreciate. And they, they're also special and mouse is special and a bean special. Each one is special evolved for their particular environment. We have this age or particularly in the West, particularly given uh, monotheism, we have this deep-seated desire to be the uh, unique, utterly unique and on top of, on top of the, 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 the food chain. But we are unique, but so are, so are other creatures. And th that's fine. I don't need to be unique in order to, in order to appreciate this wonderful life that I've been given. Right. You don't need to buy into the, the as you mentioned, the human exceptionalism. Yes. Correct. Yeah. And that, you know, that, does, uh, that, that does feel right to me also. I, I like that analogy to uh, to gravity. Yeah. Um, so you know, I wanted to know 
I'm fascinated by your your time you spent with the Dalai Lama. Um, and I, I did have a, a gentleman on the show called his name was Jacob Lucas, and he studied the survival of consciousness uh, in the Buddhist traditions. Yep. And so not not necessarily to to talk about survival of consciousness, but really with your conversations with uh, the Dalai Lama. Obviously, you know, you came away appreciating the consciousness or looking deeper in the consciousness of God's creatures, so to say. Yes. And even went so far to become a um, vegetarian. Did What do you think he took away from you? I mean, spending time, you know, all this time with you in the room, he must have, you know, must have opened his eyes to something. Did you see that, that spark moment come up with him? Huh. Nobody's ever asked me that. that uh, I don't know. I have to think about that. Yeah, I hope I he got a. I I hope he got a better appreciation. So, you know, I did try to represent him there. That so, so he invited me and a few of my colleagues, uh, mainly physicists, to 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 teach about the Western view of the universe, the age of the universe, evolution, and the brain. And so, certainly, he's quite conversant in the meantime about brain and brain science because he's he's very interested in it. So I, I certainly hope, and given the questions he asks, I mean, he's obviously very, very smart and gets, you know, learns, gets it very quickly, although he might, he's close to 80 now, um, right. uh, that, he, that, he, that, that he appreciates some of the way we in the West look at the consciousness from the external point of view, right? So what the, what the Buddhists, particularly the Tibetan Buddhists, but in general the Buddhist tradition is they study, they care less about the material aspect of the world, right? They never developed really a science on a technology in the sense that we have. What they have done, they've studied consciousness through these very meditative practices, right? They, they try to study it from, from the inside, as it were, right? You know, achieving mindfulness right. and, and this pure consciousness experience. Well, we in the West, by and large, we don't do that, although now some of us do it because, you know, it gives us, you know, peaceful. But, but we study the external manifestation. You know, we study it in psychology. We study it in, in, with magnetic scanners. We study it in right. animals. So we know a lot about the third-person manifestation. And the, the hope is that by fusing both, and this is what we're trying to do, for example, by getting long-term meditators or Buddhists to be inside a magnet, while they're meditating to to try to study what is it about the brain that happens and how does it happen and and how does it fit with our account of consciousness we can un, we can sort of extend our understanding of consciousness using both western and eastern traditions yeah yeah that's really that's really fascinating it is that, it is yeah that must have, that must have been been quite a quite an experience yeah, I mean, what, what I really took from that and also from some of the people that, that you know, some of the scholars is just this, they all seem, how should I say, they laugh a lot. I never see sort of strife among them. Although, you know, they live, most of them live very, very to our standards, very poor lives in a monastery in India, the guests of the Indian government, right? They all perfectly well know in their lifetime they're never going to uh, return to Tibet. China isn't going to allow them right, to do that, right? right? Um, and they have accepted that, but they, they they radiate this cheerfulness and and this mindfulness. It's um, it's quite remarkable. They're, they're they're sort of the most peaceful and as a group the most content people that I know, despite them having or maybe because they have so few possessions. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I know I've done a little bit of studying in, in the whole the you know concepts of suffering 
and being right here in the moment as opposed to allowing the, the yep. past or the future to lead to suffering that it is, it's an interesting observation that they're always smiling and happy. Yeah, and they, they, of course, they know, just like us, they know death and they know suffering, but they, they have managed to, um, yeah, I mean, like you, I also lost a child. My, you know, the, the daughter I lost was very young, and it, it sort of haunted me for many, many, many years. Mm. And, and trying to come to peace with that, you know, just takes a very, very long time. And, and these people have found ways of, of do, doing with, accepting it, not suppressing it, accepting it and saying, well, you know, that's part of the suffering and we all go through that and somehow they can deal with it much better than we can here. Right. Right. Well, I'm sorry to, to hear you've been through that too. It's uh, it is a tough thing to, to go through and definitely pokes at your consciousness. Uh, yes, it does. Yes, it yeah. does. Um, you, uh, you, you sure have, you've answered most of my questions just from expanding on, on things here. Um, one thing I always like to ask is, you know, give, given where you stand on this and, and your position on, on what consciousness is and how it arises and the integrated information um, theory, do you think there's anything an, an individual can do to exercise his or her consciousness to, to get deeper into his or her consciousness? I mean, any of the information or findings that you've come across in, in your studies and in your work, do you think there's any way for us to actually kind of mold or play with our own consciousness? Well, yeah. So one is I, these Eastern techniques of meditative practices, right? They, right. because they, you know, they, they, you know, just this idea of mindfulness that if you sit down to eat, you're really, you know, you try to taste the food and you're really, you're, you're mindful of that. You're not sort of, you try to shut down this inner voice, right? This constant critic that says, oh, you quickly have to eat because then you have to look at your iPhone and then there's this news and then you have to talk to your wife and then, you know, you have to go to the office and then there's a tax return and all these dialogue, you know, this constant chattering, right? Why do we find, so I used to be a, cl a rock climber or now I'm, I'm biking and I'm rowing. And why do we find some of these things so addictive? Because that inner voice, you know, that when, when you get into the, that zone, when, you, when mm -hmm. your performance is really good, why do we find that so addictive? Because that inner voice is gone. That chatter, that constant chatter in my head that says I have to do this and that, and then you know I'm thinking forward to this thing in half a year from now, all of that's gone. You're, in the, you're very conscious. You're conscious of the here and now. Right? When you rock climb, you're conscious of every little indentation in the rock. You're always conscious where the last hole is below you. You, know, you feel the sun on your back. You're, you're totally out there, right? And somehow right. it's a it's a blissful it's a it's a it's a feeling that radiates content and 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 yeah. happiness and and we we can take that into our daily life and just do things much more thoughtful to not always you know and of course our life today with iPhones you know and all of that con mm -hmm. totally runs counter to that right because I need to be bombarded with a stream of information and images. And if it's taking more than five seconds, I automatically go to the next because I don't have time to wait five seconds for the, for, for the content to come up, right? That does exactly the opposite. We become more and we become less and less mindful. 
we become more and more needy. We constantly need that. We constantly need that new thing, and it doesn't make us happy. And I see it everywhere. People are less happy, although we live longer. We're richer than ever before in the history of mankind. As a people, we're less happier than ever. And so that's something yeah. I think we can, we, 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 we can take from, and from these studies. And also the appreciation that consciousness can be found everywhere. It's not just in us. It's not just in us and in great apes. It's everywhere out there in nature. And we should appreciate that and we should be mindful of, of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's outstanding. That, that's a, a very positive way to, to look at life. And I think once you get that understanding, it sure does help you sink in with everything else and connect and, and be happier. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Be more there. Be more there. Yeah, be, be more, more mindful. Present. Think of what mindful means. Your mind is full. Mm-hmm. Rather than just being very shallow, one thing after the other, quick, 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 quick. Yeah. Yeah. Being, being present without your lizard brain chasing after everything. Yeah. Outstanding. Yeah. That's, that's a fantastic lesson. Um, and that's and that you know that was pretty quick. Those were the questions that I had. Did you have anything else that you'd like to discuss, or did I not ask you some some question you wanted to discuss or go through? No, you asked me pretty much uh, the, the the one thing I guess uh, because you mentioned it once panpsychism. So most of my colleagues, when I mention panpsychism, they roll their eyes. You know, it's they sort do? of it's, it, yeah, they do esoteric. So panpsychism just you know it's Greek pan everywhere psychism soul. The, you know, the world is in soul. The idea that consciousness isn't just in us, right? Most people get it. Maybe great apes have it, right? And we know the mirror test. Right. Some of the chimps can pass the mirror test. But, but that's, of course, just self-consciousness. And furthermore, that's just visual self-consciousness. So, of course, dogs, you know, dogs don't care about their images in a mirror. Right? They don't recognize themselves in a mirror because they're not visual. They're primarily olfactory. But they can for right. sure recognize when you take out your dog, your dog will... You know, your dog can tell the difference be- between his own pee and his own poop and the pee and poop of other dogs. The dogs, are, mm-hmm. of course, also have a self-recognition. And then you generalize that. The, the, the idea that, that consciousness, certainly in the animal world, is much more widespread. And maybe it's present in most or maybe in all creatures. Again, most right. people find that, but, uh, find that strange. But I think but mainly because we don't know, you know, a bee is so radically different from us. It's tiny, it flies about, it doesn't have two eyes, you know, it's so radically different, but that doesn't mean it, it can't be sentient. And, and the rash, if you study it scientifically, it's vastly more likely that it shares this property of the world with us than, than it's sort of just a single automata. Right. Yeah, so I think we, we, we covered all the ground. So people roll their eyes at the notion, not not that they they roll their eyes at the notion that other creatures have consciousness. That that's what they can't get around. By well, so so I guess I'm particularly talking about my colleagues, biologists, partly because right. I mean this is not the public at large, but this is my colleagues, partly because there's still this um, and this um, behaviorist tradition is still very strong, particularly in this country, less 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 strong in in, in Europe. You know the, the 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 very long dominant school of thought in psychology and cognitive science that you know talking about consciousness is non-scientific. You know you can't really that that's not science. That's sort of voodoo. Right. That's sort of that's fine. You know once you're retired you can talk about that and religion and other things. But we as scientists, hey, you know we talk about the real thing. But of course, consciousness is more real than anything else because if I'm not conscious, 
There's nothing else for me. If I give you a billion dollars, Stuart, I say, well, here's all the money of, uh, in the world. There's just one little issue. You'll never be conscious of anything again. So you, from the outside, you, it looks exactly the same. You have your life, you have your loves, you have your, your trips, you have your private airplane, you seem to enjoy it, but it doesn't feel like anything. Well, then what's the point? If it doesn't feel like anything, if I don't experience it, then you know, then, then there's yeah. no me. Right? This, is, this is, of course, the, the, the Cartesian, you know, the inside of René Descartes, that the only way I know that I exist is because I'm conscious. So consciousness comes prior to physics. That's what people, that's what the saying is, phenomenology comes prior to physics. Before I know there's a law of gravity and, you know, there are people and dogs and chemical elements and periodic table, the one thing I know, I have experiences. I, I have pain and yeah. pleasure. I know who I am, etc. And those, those pains and those pleasures, that experience, that, that's what you refer to as the self? Well, well, the self is, no, the, the self sort of, there's the narrative self and the experiential self. So this is the experiential self. I oh. have pains. I, not, you know, those are my pains. They're not your pains. You may have empathy right. to me if you're my wife and you see me suffering, but that's your empathy. The pains are me. The pleasure is me. The seeing red is me. So that's my experiential self. Then it's also this narrative self, right? My mom has shown me pictures of me when I was four years old, and she pointed, you see, that's you. That's a little Christoph. I have no experience right. of that, but I believe it. And so now, you know, and I, I know what I did yesterday. I know what I did a year ago. You know, I can remember my, you know, my kids, et cetera. So that's my, that's my, by my narrative self as it evolves through, through, through life. But the, the thing that's most immediate is my, is the, the experience right now. Right. Experiencing self. Yeah, yeah and, that, and that ties into your original discussion of consciousness and the phenomenal awareness. Yeah, correct. All right. Excellent. Um, you know, you brought up the pan site, and I, I had another question you may have seen when I sent you the questions, but it was, uh, and I think I already know the answer, but I'll throw it out there just in case. With the panpsychism, I know one of my misunderstandings in the beginning was that panpsychism meant almost a cosmic consciousness. If there's a consciousness everywhere, and I'm seeing the picture you're drawing for me is is consciousness arises from the complex system that is our is, is my personal brain, and it's not connected or, or pulling that consciousness out of some greater consciousness. But I guess I'd just like to ask you: is that is that how you feel? You're, you're not really promoting a cosmic consciousness per se, or any kind of common consciousness between us, or is there any kind of interaction between consciousnesses? Very good question. So, A, when you say panpsychism, it's like saying Christianity, right? We all know there's Catholicism, right. there's Protestant, there are myriads of different shades of what Christians believe or what Buddhists believe, right? So, panpsychism means many things. One interpretation, it says it's comp everything is in soul. Dust has consciousness, the universe has consciousness. Uh, the um, uh, Anima Mundi, right? The 16th century um, 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 uh, what's his name, who started the Benedictine, uh, the monk, um, ah, you know, he did the know. sermon to the sun and the sermon, you know, brother, sun, sister, moon. Um, right. Anyhow, so, so uh, no, so I take a different view based on the theory that all complex systems have, they feel like something to be a complex system. And there's a right. very specific prediction you can make. You're conscious, I'm conscious. But there is no uber consciousness there's no Stuart christoph yes we're exchanging information no question we're interacting right now I, you ask a question i answered you ask me something else but the the theory says 
the conscience is always the local maximum of integrated information. So my brain has a very high phi. Your brain has a very high phi. It's a local maximum. That's why you're conscious, I'm conscious. But the phi between us is very low. And we can do the following experiment using a future technology. We can start connecting our brains to each other, with each other. Mm -hmm. And let's say, and I wrap up the bandwidth. So early on, I can, let's see, I have a few wires into your visual brain, so I can see what you see. Or I have a few wires that go into your auditory cortex, so I can, you know, hear what you hear. Right. And same thing with you. So I'm still me, I'm still Christoph, but now I have some flashes. Oh, that's what Stuart currently is looking at. Okay. And same with you. But there's still you and there's still me. Now, the theory says, as I increase the bandwidth of this, of this technology, at some point, the phi, the integrated information of this new system, meaning your brain and my brain, will be bigger than the phi of your brain alone or the phi of my brain alone. At that point, I will die. Krista will disappear. Stuart will disappear. And there will be this new entity, this Krista Stuart, this new consciousness that's an amalgamation of both you and me. It'll have memories of both you and me and will be its own conscious entity. But based on two brains. Four it's a little bit the inverse of a split brain experiment. You, have you heard about split mm -hmm. brain experiment? Yeah, yeah. So, so in the split brain experiment, my brain is, is cut by the surgeon, you know, the corpus callosum, mm -hmm. the 200 million fibers. Right. I cut. And now, as far as we can tell, there are two consciousness inside my one skull. Typically, because only the left hemisphere speaks, you can only interact with the left hemisphere, but the right one is also there. So, so, so you have two consciousness in two in each one confined to the cortical hemisphere. Here we're doing sort of the opposite with this thought experiment. There would be one consciousness in four cortical hemispheres. But so the theory says either there, either there's this, there's this uber consciousness, but again, it's one, or there's this individual right. consciousness, but it's not at the same time. So it makes some very precise prediction about group consciousness. Group consciousness in that sense cannot occur. There's the, there's, they're the, just like my neurons individually are unconscious. My, I, I, the whole right. is conscious, the entire, my entire yeah. cerebral cortex, same thing, you're conscious, I'm conscious, but there isn't an uber-consciousness, although we can create this, this new thing called, you know, Stuart Christoph. Right. Yeah, in that case, it has to be connected, have the bandwidth, and, and become a, a larger complex system. It's not that they're going to do exactly. this just through the ether. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And it also goes hand in hand with the fact that then, then you and I will disappear. There will only be this, right. this, the, the, this new entity. You will not survive as an individual. I mean, your consciousness won't, won't be there anymore in my consciousness. Instead, there will be this new, presumably much bigger thing. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's a whole different dimension. That's, that's pretty that's cool, no? Yeah, it is very cool. And I think this is, yeah. I mean, this will be possible. This will be possible, not now, but this will be, con uh, this will be, uh, this will be consciousness. Uh, this will be yeah. possible. Interesting. And when you when you tear it down to the two individual consciousnesses return, would you think? Oh yes, in principle, it, it's fully reversible. At yeah. least the theory says that practically, you know. And I'm I might experience this as a wonderful thing. Although yeah. early on, probably it'll be very disorienting, because you know if we never experienced it before, now suddenly this new consciousness can now control you know controls two bodies, right? Your body yeah. and my body. It's a yeah, great science uh, fiction novel waiting there to be yeah, written. I was, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, that's, somebody's got to write this where you just yes. put on helmets and yes. Yes. turn into a greater thing. It's uh, yes. Werner Ving and his, his yes. group, his group yes. consciousness of the dogs. Yes, exactly. Yeah, outstanding, outstanding.
Well, uh, again, I, I really appreciate your time, Christoph. This has really been fascinating and really given me a, a lot more to think about. Um, and uh, just, you know, thank you for your time today. No problem. You have some very good questions. Uh, it's always uh, good to talk to good people who ask interesting questions and make one think. That concludes another edition of the Consciousness Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash the consciousness podcast at our Twitter handle at conchcast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at the consciousness podcast.com. Thank you for listening.